and welcome to the Suburb Futures podcast. Here, we discuss issues of sustainability and equity in the context of U.S. suburbs. We think these conversations are important because more people in the United States live in suburbs than urban and rural areas combined, and they are host to a number of issues that require much more attention. So thank you for joining us and taking part in this discussion. Keep in mind that suburbs are highly nuanced, dynamic, and diverse places, even if common stereotypes of suburbs are a stagnant image. We invite our listeners to reimagine with us what suburbs can be through these generous interviews to come. I'm Erica Dorn, founder of Suburb Futures, an organization that works relationally to advance sustainability and equity agendas in U.S. suburbs. This work was born out of my doctoral research in transition design at Carnegie Mellon University. And I'm Kaylin DeZeo. I have a background in ecology and I'm a master's student in public policy and management at Carnegie Mellon University. This is part one of a series exploring questions about sustainability and U.S. suburbs. We surface a national debate centered around the question of sprawl versus density and head to the burbs where we contextualize that debate in the lived realities in the U.S. suburb of Aurora, Colorado, also Erica's hometown. In this episode, you'll hear from Joan Nassar, a landscape ecologist and professor at Kaylin's alma mater, the University of Michigan School for Environment and Sustainability. You'll also hear from Judge Glock, economic historian and chief policy officer at the Cicero Institute, a frequent author on the topic of sustainability in suburbs, including a recent blog titled Sprawl is Good, which spurred this episode. Finally, we hear from Fendi Dupre from the City of Aurora's Plain Conservation Center, who will help contextualize an understanding of suburbs from her perspective as an environmental educator and steward in the suburbs. Come along with us as we survey the suburban landscape and try to disentangle questions of ecological sustainability with realities of social, racial, and economic justice. By the end of this two-part series, we hope that you can carry this conversation forward to help advance equity and sustainability in U.S. suburbs. My name is Juan Marcano, and I have the honor and pleasure of representing Ward 4 on the Aurora City Council. When I hear someone say that suburbs are sustainable, um, my initial reaction is to strongly disagree, (laughs) Um, because I'm thinking of the contemporary North American model of suburban development that's really popular in the United States and Canada, especially, um, where you have basically single family home, you know, developments, um, and strip centers out, you know, as far as the eye can see. I think I have the same initial reaction as one that how can suburbs be sustainable? Um, and if they're not, I guess the question becomes, how do we make them more sustainable? Yeah, I know for decades, cities have been heralded as the more sustainable human habitat. You know, the idea that density with its walkability, public transportation, can is more in a more ecological option, whether that's true or not, which we'll we'll keep dis- discovering uh, through conversation and obviously science, <laughs> science and time will tell. Um, is that despite the push for urbanization or or the natural inclination towards it, suburban sprawl is growing and in in many cases outpacing urbanization. Um, suburbanization is is grown a lot, especially during COVID. I'd struggle with it because I did grow up in the suburbs. So I, my gut reaction is that they, that living in New York city, I walkability, public transportation, and certainly the, the lived experience is much more personally sustainable in in the city. Um, But I know that as we'll find out through some of these, you know, some of these interviews is that there are a lot of people have a lot of preference for suburbs. I think it's really important to even give some more context to suburbanization, which is that despite a push for urbanization, the reality is that actually not just 
people aren't just voting with their feet, so to speak, by moving to suburbs, but there's um, many uh, refugees are being resettled in suburbs. There's more immigrants move to suburbs than any other context in the United States. And in fact, there is more poverty growing in suburbs, but there's also more inequity. So wealth gaps are increasing in the suburban context. And so it's not, you know, so we have to look at suburbs as the primary human habitat. More people in the United States live in suburbs than urban and rural areas combined. And that includes all people socioeconomic across socioeconomic and race, racial groups. So I, I wanted to make sure to lay out some of that context before we jump into this clip with Judge. Yeah, Erica, that's really important. And um, I think that also is important as Judge touches on the question of affordability as it relates to sustainability in suburbs as well. Great, let's listen. I found that uh, in general, that suburbs were both more affordable and more sustainable than many people given the credence for. The argument I, I encountered when I came to California uh, and came to work very well, uh, very closely with the Yimby movement, the Yes in My Backyard movement, uh, was that we needed to densify our cities for going to achieve more affordable housing. The Yimby movement was overwhelmingly focused on getting more affordable housing and especially what they call upzoning in America's uh, big cities, especially their central cities and kind of surrounding near end suburbs. And I did and do continue to support the Yimby movement. I think they do fantastic work. I think they allow a lot more housing to get built, and especially in areas like California that need more housing. Uh, but one of the things I pointed out to the Yimby movement was that they, there's a sort of contradiction at the heart of their program, which was their argument was that California was unaffordable because it didn't densify and it needed to be more dense. It was going to be affordable. And yet I said, well, look, California, by most measures, has the densest urban areas in the country, again, around seven to 8,000 people per square mile. By some metrics, uh, LA and San Francisco are the first and third densest metro areas in the country, you know, despite popular compressions to the contrary. Uh, and yet these were also the areas that had the highest rates of unaffordable housing. What Judge brings up here is one of the defining characteristics that differentiates cities from suburbs, which is density. His work in California focuses on how density correlates with affordability. So next, let's hear more about how he thinks about density and sustainability. So what the uh, the article I wrote recently recently for the Breakthrough Journal was called Sprawl is Good, which was just a little tongue in cheek and a little provocative, but was trying to show what I call the environmental benefits of sprawl. And, you know, there were some general ones. There's some that aren't often appreciated. Uh, one, that there's just a massive research in the environmental and economic literature that sprawl tends to have lower air pollution, lower local air pollution, by which I mean lower particulate matter, what they call, you know, lower than 2.5 micrograms, these little kind of soot particles. You get lower nitrous oxide, lower, lower sulfur dioxide, mainly because sprawl allowed uh, uh, the air pollution to disperse. If you have a lot of people and a lot of cars in a very concentrated area, you're going to be absorbing more air pollution per capita in that. So that, that's one problem with densification. The other problem that I mentioned was that uh, Dense areas create a heat island effect. One of the you know, most important ways people are talking about adapting to climate change is how we create green buildings and how we create buildings and built environments that are well adapted to higher temperatures. And NASA, uh, when it recently did a, a comprehensive study of cities, said very clearly that dense areas, especially dense areas with very concentrated urban cores, tend to have a much greater heat island effect. And this was, in fact, by far the most important sort of impact of the built environment on local temperatures of anything they study. So these two things were, were pretty significant. Mm -hmm. These are local environmental effects, but they do impact people. They need to be kind of considered when we talk about the cost and benefits of, of sprawl. Now, what's the impact of sprawl, though, on emissions? How does sprawl affect uh, CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions? And my general argument was that on the whole, it's probably slightly better. And again, not saying that that's the only way people should live, but it's probably slightly more reduced in terms of CO2 emissions in a sprawling environment than in a dense environment for two main reasons. Well, one is that building tall just uses a lot more energy and greenhouse gas. 
So if you look at, especially build larger buildings, those constructed with uh, steel and concrete, steel and concrete use about five times more energy than wood, which wood is a great reusable carbon sink uh, that is fairly cheap and fairly energy efficient to use for buildings. And those taller buildings actually just cost more to heat and cool. Now, the, the other thing I, I talked about in the article is kind of the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is driving. Now, driving is more common in sprawling areas than in dense areas. I'm, I'm not denying that that's true, but I think people don't understand the scale of that. Uh, so according to the National Research Council, the most respected scientific body in America that does deep, what they call meta-surveys of scientific issues. They did a study just two or three years ago about the connections between sprawling environments and what's called VMT, vehicles, mile travel, how much people drive when they're in those environments. And they found a doubling of density in these cities probably reduce VMT, vehicles, miles, vehicle miles traveled by about five to 12%. So this is, is actually shockingly minor. There's been no modern city in America, even in California elsewhere, that has doubled their density in the past, in any time in the past 200 years. And yet this massive doubling, which itself, if we tried to do it, would take decades and decades, would only have a very minor reduction of CO2. We are now engaged in a massive change in our transportation infrastructure where many more cars are going into electric, hybrid, and autonomous uh, vehicles, which are going to use massively less CO2 per vehicle mile travel. So if we're looking at rearranging our sort of built environment, merely for the sake of reducing driving, I think we are, are massively misdirecting our political resources in terms of, of climate change. Efficiencies we can do from changing the transportation fleet are massive. So I say with that, like, we need, again, that diversity of different environments. That's the beauty of American urban landscape. We have a diversity of environments for different people, and we have to sort of accommodate that. Uh, but it seems that most of Americans, and this is true actually all around the world, have gradually moved to more sprawling environments, no matter what the policy or the country sort of uh, policies are. And we've seen that, especially in the future, these sprawling environments will become more green. Uh, they will become more energy efficient. They will become uh, more likely to use the autonomous and electric vehicles to get around. And we should, environmentalists should embrace that. We should understand that this is a sustainable future that most Americans want. Judge has offered us a lot to think about already. To recap, he argues that sprawling areas are environments with lower air pollution and lower heat island effects. He also mentioned the potentially lower carbon emissions of suburbs, which is a claim based on the emissions associated with different building materials and building designs. He also talked about the role of driving and offered some criticism of using vehicle miles traveled as a metric for sustainability. Ultimately, though, Judge is hopeful for a green future for suburbs. Next, we'll hear him speak about how geographic location contributes to sustainability. The other thing that I think is important is that there are areas that are more climate efficient than other areas or regions. And I often cite California. Californians use about half the amount of greenhouse gases per year as the average American. The average American emits about 20 tons of greenhouse gases a year. The average Californian emits about nine. Now, that's partially because uh, there are green regulations, the, the general environmental tendency of, of the population and the politics. But that's also largely because they have a very balmy climate. Unlike the local air pollution I talked about, we don't care where person A or B emits. We just care the emissions go up into the atmosphere. And so California and some of these other states need to kind of balance their concern about what particular environmental impacts are happening with the ability to you know, get more people in the state, which is a net environmental positive. But if you control for sort of level of education and uh, income and all this, the, the suburbs tend to have maybe slightly more social connections than the urban areas. Different people choose different things. And, uh, you know, I think on the whole, our job is, you know, sort of as policymakers and thinkers is to accommodate that with the important caveat that we've discussed, which is making sure they kind of pay for what the economists call their externalities. So if you are emitting CO2 into the atmosphere, in some sense, you should pay for the appropriate uh, cost of carbon of that. 
And if that cost of carbon is appropriately set, then, well, hey, maybe you drive a little less. Maybe you uh, uh, maybe buy a slightly more energy efficient home. But importantly, we give the people the options to do that. We don't tell you how to kind of rearrange your life or what sort of situation you should live in. We, we want people to make those trade-offs themselves. We want them to say, hey, you know, I want to put a little more money to my education and I want to spend a little less on energy. Or, hey, maybe I want to spend a, a little more on energy. I live in a cold area uh, and I, I care about that more. As long as people are quote, paying for that, then that should be okay. And hopefully that'll incentivize the right behaviors to make you know, an appropriately environmentally sustainable now, there, there are things that are, that are harmful uh, about the current sprawl. One of the things that I think people have rightfully complained about, uh, both EMPs and other groups, is these sort of very large uh, zoning uh, minimum acreage requirements. Sort of, instead of your average family home is going to take maybe about a quarter of an acre at most, but in a lot of the outlying suburbs, there's sort of four or five acres minimum requirement if you're going to build a house, which that's not enough to build a neighborhood. That's not enough for anybody to use that. You're just a big mowing headache. There's no, there's no real benefits to that. And I don't think a lot of people are choosing to live in those four or five acre things. It's sort of being mandated. After listening to judges' ideas about the environmental impact of sprawl and some potential policies to increase sustainability, we were curious to know what, if any, negative characteristics judge associates with sprawl. Here are some of his thoughts. But in terms of the Ponzi scheme uh, argument against sprawl, now you've heard a lot of that basically going back to this 1974 report, The Cost of Sprawl, that was updated again in 2000, that said, well, all of these extended lines and sewers and electrical infrastructure, it's very expensive and there's no way to upkeep it and this is all going to gradually depreciate and degrade, and these are going to be the, quote, the slums of the future. Now, luckily, we've had about 50 years to, uh, to look at that, and that, that hasn't been true. A lot of those things that were built either in the 1950s or 1970s have been very successful and uh, thriving, and largely we've seen that they've largely paid for themselves, except for very, very sparse areas, sort of fewer than 200 people per square mile. Uh, sprawling areas have cheaper infrastructure than denser areas. And I often tell people, anyone who's seen a reconstruction project in downtown New York knows that it's not very efficient. Uh, putting sewer lines and electrical lines outside in the suburbs actually can be very, very efficient and very, very cheap. Uh, and so I think on the whole, these suburbs are, they're paying for themselves. They, people themselves are, are paying for them, and yet they're still more affordable. So hearing from Judge Erica, what are you thinking? Oh, you know, it's it's um, I think because my lived experience of the suburbs versus cities and because of perhaps just the entrenched realities of, of urbanization and, and believing that, that that's a that that is a more sustainable option. It's really challenging my my mental model at the moment. But I think the most important part for me is this question of affordability. It's a really, really important aspect of this conversation because we're in the middle of a housing crisis. And the reality is that not everyone chooses to live in the suburbs. It's often a default location. It could be also where you were displaced to. A lot of people are gentrified out of cities and into suburbs. Not everyone chooses to, to move to a large house in the suburbs um, out of preference. However, it's extremely complex, the number of reasons why people are, are settled in or, or moving through suburbs. But I don't think we can decouple the conversation of sustainability from the inequities that are really present. More people in the United States live in suburbs than urban and rural areas combined. There's more poverty growing in the suburbs and there's more inequity. So there's more wealth growing as well. Um, but the disparity is increasing. And I think we have to really center that in this conversation. But what are your thoughts, Kaylin? Yeah, Erica, thanks so much for that extra context about the growth of suburbs. Um, and you're right, not everyone chooses to live there. But for those who do, there is this question of how can we make the best use of those lots in suburbs, of those homes in suburbs, and how can people be influenced to make the best decision for the common good? And to explore that question a little more, we'll hear next from Joan Nassauer about the landscape of suburbs and the behavioral and policy levers 
that uh, might be useful for creating more sustainable suburban landscapes. I'm Joan Nossauer, and I am a landscape ecologist and landscape architect on the faculty of the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. I've been thinking about suburbs for a long time, decades, partly because my research has been very centered on how to enhance Initially, I was thinking about how to enhance biodiversity of metropolitan landscapes and agricultural landscapes. And the uniformity of turf lawns presented itself as a challenge for that uh, research early on. So starting decades ago, I made proposals for alternatives to uniform turf lawns in residential landscapes. And uh, began doing a series of what now have become many surveys in which we aim to understand better why suburban residential landscapes are the way they are and where the opportunities were to essentially use the land in suburban landscapes to provide greater and more societal benefits. I'd just like to emphasize how Joan's work takes advantage of what already exists in suburbs and what she calls its greatest asset, the land. She studies what opportunities there are to use suburban land, specifically lawns, to create ecological benefits. And next you'll hear her speak about the challenge to create lasting change that her work addresses. There really were substantial design challenges in doing that alone, because often adopters of ecologically innovative uh, alternatives to turf were enthusiasts. They knew or came to know a lot about native plants or, and, and pollinators and to some degree uh, other organisms. And so the beauty of providing sort of the intrinsic beauty of providing greater biodiversity appealed to them. But when the landscape uh, management would change, that might mean a new uh, occupant of a home. It might mean a new manager of a, uh, uh, you know, an apartment building. It might mean a new CEO of a corporate headquarters. If they were not knowledgeable or enthusiastic, about biodiversity, often the landscape would revert back to the conventional. And so the challenge that I had as a designer and scientist was to think about how we could introduce biodiversity, patches of biodiversity into metropolitan landscapes in ways that would Stay that way, even when the knowledgeable or enthusiastic initiator was no longer the manager of the landscape. I developed some strategies for that that, that have been quite widely adopted. However, what I think is a real breakthrough in uh, a much, much broader appreciation for landscapes that uh, go beyond conventions of turf lawns and the kind of conventions that we can all imagine. What has been a real breakthrough has been the adoption of green stormwater infrastructure as a means of local governments conforming with the Clean Water Act. And so once local governments found ways to enlist um, citizens groups, to enlist individual homeowners in you know, doing something different in their yards that would have a benefit that conformed with regulatory standards, that is making sure that water quality as it moved downstream was improved by moving through some kind of green infrastructure. And so I think uh, movement of the uh, kind of evolution of uh, federal water policy to affect cities really has advanced multifunctionality of uh, suburban landscapes more generally. Because uh, 
visible changes in the landscape in the form of green infrastructure has become, again, within the last 10 years, a really common form of uh, change in metropolitan landscapes. I think that has driven interest in other kinds of uh, landscape innovations that are changing suburban landscapes, landscapes that provide greater ecosystem services in suburban landscapes. We call those ecological innovation, but a lot of innovation is a, a product of uh, diffusion and diffusion in which someone sees something that they can recognize as valuable, something they want to emulate, but they have to see the example first and then and then they can imitate it. So diffusion of innovation is a key to enhancing the social and environmental services of uh, suburban landscapes. It's only one key, but I, I think it is an important one. But I see two primary behavioral levers that uh, landscape design and planning can employ to change suburban landscapes. One is diffusion of innovation when people recognize an innovation as something that, that they value and that they can imitate. But the second is conforming with neighborhood norms. And I think of those social and environmental benefits. It could be water quality. It could be uh, carbon storage. It could be biodiversity. It could be, and this is really an important one, achieving more equitable, equitable access to benefits. So once we know what those are, then I think of this question of, well, how should it look so that people recognize it as valuable as a different question. It is not the same question as the benefits that we want to ensure. Let's create a kind of heart connection, a heartfelt connection between people and a landscape that offers all of these benefits. It's a profoundly kind of social way to think about landscapes. And it's that social symbolism that uh, is likely to sustain and an ecologically innovative pattern. That is, this is likely not to be changed because my neighbors would not be happy if I, <laughs> if I changed it. Or this is likely not to be changed because all of us in our neighborhood love this place. You know, call it, imagine it's a park or it's a stormwater retention pond, whatever it is. We love this place. And because of the love, the ecological benefits that a place uh, provides are likely to be sustained. And so suburban landscapes present a particular opportunity because if we think of uh, metropolitan areas primarily as uh, places for people to live and conduct commerce, um, it makes sense if we think of only those two things, where we live, where we you know, make a living, and where there's commerce, where we can get what we need, there almost doesn't need to be land in it, right? It's It could be hyper, hyper dense as many cities are. But once we expand that uh, livelihood, commerce, residence, um, the, that set of needs over a much larger landscape, we know that we gain in, uh, intrinsic benefits related to immediate connection to you know sunlight to air to other things that we can design in to suburban landscapes but what is most fundamental that we gain is more space <laughs> and so it brings us to the question of what can we give not only to those who live in suburban landscapes but to society and global health as a whole by the way we use that space. And that kind of gets us back to this um, microcosm, this microcosmic image of the lawn, mm. <laughs> the green lawn, the mown lawn, because for many home, suburban homeowners, that's just the most obvious solution to what to them feels like a challenging problem. What do I do with all that space? <laughs> Especially if I am not um, a person who you know, loves plants and loves to experiment, if I don't feel I have, quote, a green thumb. 
the lawn may just feel like the uh, a manageable way to deal with that space. But to the extent that we can employ that space and use these behavioral nudges related to cues to care and the neighbor effect to help people employ that space to enhance biodiversity, to enhance water quality, to store carbon, and, and of course, to contribute to human well-being by all of the, the characteristics that come with having green space, then we better understand that there is a place for the suburban landscapes that we have and that will continue to grow in a metropolitan landscape. So I, I think understanding space is how landscape ecology and sustainability sort of meet suburbia. What a great way to sum up Joan's work. Seeking to understand the physical space and landscape in suburbs is how we can better understand sustainability in suburbs. And now that we've heard the foundation of Joan's work in creating ecologically innovative landscapes, we were curious to learn more about how equity issues surface in her work. So I do think that planning and retrofitting of the suburbs that exist needs to be innovated toward equity. And the way that the Dutch have operationalized that concept in Dutch agricultural landscapes has a very poetic description uh, in Dutch planning, and they call it green ribbons. So green ribbons make for a more permeable agricultural landscape. Well, imagine green ribbons superimposed on uh, not only the most dense inner ring suburbs of major American cities, but on the residential areas of the urban core itself. It's a little bit different from the important ideas of the 19th century of you know, providing big parks and, and kind of much smaller uh, sitting areas in, um, in urban areas. The idea is that the landscape as a whole, very much including suburbs, needs to be threaded through with these green ribbons that allow, that are scaled to give access to the experience of the best of what makes a green landscape appealing to everyone. Why, why does it work that way? Because there's a lot of edge. Ribbons have a lot of edge. They don't collect uh, all of the good green stuff only in one place. Now, as a landscape ecologist, I know that you can't have only ribbons. You need very large patches as well uh, in, from a habitat standpoint and for lots of reasons ecologically. But I think borrowing this metaphor of green ribbons could very much help us re-envision how we need suburbs to perform to create greater equity, greater access for everyone. We can, I believe we can achieve this with just some innovation in planning and design. This isn't something that we can't imagine. We can imagine it. And it really only requires the right levers, the right regulatory levers, the right financial levers, and the right uh, design nudges to make it happen. Yeah, that was so great. Joan has so much expertise in how sustainability can be achieved at the neighborhood scale, which really gives me hope about how suburb by suburb and neighborhood by neighborhood suburbs can become more sustainable. And she has, you know, really specific techniques that she's studied about how to achieve sustainable behaviors. But just in general, um, her hope that there is a sustainable future for suburbs gives me hope as well. Oh, me too. Yeah, every time I'm in the suburban landscape, I envision, just as she describes, those water hogging lawns traded for native landscapes and, and more food producing situations. So, and I'm excited that there are actually recent bans on grass and golf courses in places like Nevada and Arizona. And I think it also Aurora is considering a ban starting next year with new development. 
So yeah, I'm hopeful too. It's it's either going to be policy, law, or social pressure that 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 shifts culture. And so until there's a complete ban, I think it's it's really important that we look at these behavioral patterns and how they at the micro behavioral scale it can shift. Um, and I I know we're gonna up next we're gonna hear from Fendi, who is someone I met at the Plains Conservation Center. She is a ranger, essentially uh, she works for Aurora Parks and um, is helping to steward some of the last open space in the city of Aurora that is really important for the overall ecosystem health. Yeah, the Plains Conservation Center is doing such cool work with you know preserving what the native ecosystem is and the ecosystem services that come along with that. And Bendy has a lot to offer with um, knowledge about the, the native landscape and um, how that benefits Aurora as a whole. I learned a tremendous amount about the natural ecosystems here in Aurora uh, shortly after I got here when I started working at the Plains Conservation Center. I get a lot of people that come in that just really have no idea that this is actually part of the short grass prairie and that historically it is grasslands. Um, and I was one of those people. So I completely understand, you know, learning about that and feeling the the awe and the connection that we are on a natural landscape that you can find in little bits like at the Plains Conservation Center. There's grasslands, short grass prairie, prairie, um, short grass steppe. They all mean the same ecosystem that we have here in Aurora and most of the Front Range. Um, and it's characterized by getting very minimal amount of water. So we only get about 12 to 15 inches of precipitation per year. And that is really surprising for a lot of people that I interact with at the Plains Conservation Center. Um, it's very easy for us to just assume that water is an available resource because it feels like it, right? Anywhere we go, we have access to water and, and the water that we get naturally would not sustain our population of a half, half million people uh, in Aurora specifically, if it wasn't for our technological advances and being able to get water from the mountains. Um, so that is also, that's very shocking to people to realize that they're sitting on short grass prairie that really doesn't sustain sedentary lifestyle that we currently live here on the short grass prairie. I guess I'm curious uh, to hear more about what you were saying about the connection to place and how learning about the short grass prairie and everything um, can connect you and visitors more to Aurora. What do you see as the main ways that that happens and what other factors in the area are there that can contribute to that connection to place, do you think? I feel like one of the better ways to facilitate that connection is to just have people go out and experience the resource. So we do a lot of guided hikes um, and other tours where I can take people out there and say, you know, this is a yucca plant and this yucca plant can and was historically used by indigenous people to produce soap. So if you want to, you can uproot a yucca plant, mix it with some water, and it'll start to sud, and it'll give you a component that's really similar to soap that you could use for your shampoo. So using different ways to connect people to something that's tangible in their lives makes it a little easier for them to connect with a plant or just with a space where they're otherwise just see brown grass. <laughs> the educational piece of having them do some observation, um, really take a look at a little small piece of the prairie and say, you know, what, what do you see? What differences do you see within this little square? And pointing out just all of the life that's present in that tiny little square 
is really impactful for people when they're when they're connecting with the source resource and just explaining how many ecosystem benefits or services we get from this kind of space. So, for example, a five acre piece of short grass prairie that is in healthy condition, meaning mostly native species, can sequester up to five tons of carbon per year. And here at the Plains Conservation Center, we have about 1,100 acres of short grass prairie. So you can do you know, some math and figure out exactly how much that might be. But knowing that taking care of this piece of open space so that it is healthy enough to provide an ecosystem service, such as sequestering carbon from the atmosphere that we are releasing, really helps people connect with it at least in my experience. And then another one is a pollinator habitat. You know, we all have to eat and a lot of our food sustenance comes from the grocery store, obviously, but those several species of vegetables and fruit need to be pollinated <laughs> in order for us to be able to eat. And if we have a space here in the middle of the city that is pollinator habitat, then those pollinators can then go out into our gardens, into our crops that we grow out east to pollinate the food that we consume. So just trying to make some of those connections with this impacts your daily life, even though it's hard to see that when you're just coming out to go on a little walk. Um, as we do this education and we teach people about the limited amount of water that we have, um, it does impact their decisions on how they manage their own space. Aurora Water is incentivizing people to convert their front yards and their backyards to a more sustainable uh, landscape that's not using traditional Kentucky bluegrass, which is the species of turf grass that we use that consumes an excessive amount of water. So there is, there is some buildup moving in that people are really interested and the city is going to provide, start providing more incentives and some direction to say like, we just don't have the water capacity to sustain um, these non-native grasses. And there's so many native grasses and plants that are absolutely beautiful that will make your landscape just gorgeous. So we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> The bald eagles are one of the more charismatic um, residents that we have here, but we also have a herd of almost 100 pronghorn. And a lot of people call the pronghorn antelope, pronghorn antelope, um, but they're actually not antelope at all. They're actually more related to a giraffe than antelope. <laughs> um, and they're the fastest land mammal in North America can hit speeds of about 60 miles per hour. So they're really, really interesting creatures. Uh, we have a variety of other types of raptors or birds of prey. Um, and we also have some burrowing owls that have used the site uh, to nest. Um, and then we have rattlesnakes, which a lot of people get a little turned off visiting, but I tell everybody like, they don't want to eat something that's too big for them to swallow <laughs> nor waste their venom on you because you're too big. Um, and bull snakes, we do have some leopard frogs, which is a species of concern in Colorado listed by Colorado Parks and Wildlife. So we do have the habitat for them and support them. All kinds of grassland birds that are specifically grassland birds, so they cannot survive in habitats that have been altered too much. So we have western meadowlarks and hornlarks. Um, those are indicator species, so if you ever see them, you can say that you are in the grasslands. Um, so we support populations of them as well. Coyotes. Definitely coyotes and prairie dogs. Prairie dogs are very important here. They are a keystone species. Um, they create habitat for a, all kinds of other wildlife. They actually did a study here at the Plains Conservation Center in the early 2000s 
where they determined that over 150 different species of plants and animals depend on prairie dogs for their survival. So with with urban development, they kind of just get pushed into these tiny little plots. I mean, I'm sure you've seen them around the city. Um, They're just in this like empty parking lot space. And when they're in that kind of um, environment, it's much more difficult for them to provide their keystone services um, because they just can't spread out. They're, they evolve to move around, and it's that moving around that really promotes some of those keystone services that they do, like the aerating of the soil and stuff. Um, it's good because they do provide prey, so they're prey species for a lot of different animals, and we have a lot of hawks that live in the city. So they can still be a prey species for those hawks, like red-tailed hawks. Um, so they can perform their keystone species to services to a degree in the city, but they're definitely being pushed out and eradicated because of urbanization. So the teepees that we have are a replica Cheyenne teepee camp. So the education that we focus on here is mostly on the Cheyenne, even though the Cheyenne and the Arapaho and um, sometimes the Ute and then some other tribes did inhabit this area. Um, So we use that space to teach people about the Cheyenne's adaptations to the short grass prairie uh, while they were living here before Western settlement. So because this is such a harsh environment, because we get such little water, there's little resources available, they were nomadic. They moved around exploiting resources seasonally. So the best way to be as mobile as possible was using a teepee. And that's why that was the um, the living structure that was most feasible for this type of environment. The bison were bison and buffalo is is a synonym. It's kind of like pronghorn and antelope. Absolutely important. They used to roam the prairie in the hundreds of millions. There's no really scientists are not really sure exactly how many, um, but there were millions of them, and they were really really important for this landscape. They stimulated grass growth. They fertilized the grass by pooping on it and moving about the prairie. So unfortunately, there's, I think there's probably less than 200,000 of them now in, in natural areas. Um, But yes, they were very, very important to this ecosystem when the Native Americans were here because, well, the Native Americans relied on them really heavily. So it is, it is fixed. It is kind of landlocked. Um, So we're, we're off of Hampton and Piccadilly, and Hampton is the southern border, and then Jewel Avenue is the northern border, and then we have a neighborhood on the west side, and then on the east side is E470. Um, so there's really no room for expansion, but there is a conservation easement on it, and it is here to stay. It is never going to be developed Um, In any capacity, it's going to remain as a natural space, and we are working to get it to as close as it was when the Plains Native Americans were here as possible, because that is when it can provide those ecosystem services like being a carbon sink and pollinator habitat and a place for people to connect with nature in the city. So it is here to stay. So currently we have about 8,000 acres of open space in Aurora. For for a city that has half a million people, that's pretty good. It's not too bad. I feel like we could do more. Like I would love to do more, but I feel like it's pretty decent for the conditions that we're facing and just for the the urban sprawl that we're currently um, experiencing. So we are landlocked by a neighborhood and a major highway and Buckley Air Force Base and another neighborhood. <laughs> so just a lot of human activity that goes on all around us. 
and human activity typically means disturbing a natural area. Here specifically, we get um, disturbance that causes invasive non-native species. So these are mostly species of plants, and these plants have been designated by uh, the Department of Agriculture as being what we call invasive. And invasive means that they come in and they outcompete the native species. And when those native species disappear, then the, the habitat can no longer support species of animals, pollinators. Um, they can no longer provide those ecosystem services like um, sequestering carbon or keeping our water clean. So our biggest threat that we have here in this space is those invasive plant species. Our goal is to educate whether you live here or you don't about the natural area here and about our natural resources and how we can live harmoniously with nature so that we can all exist in a thriving way so that we're all successful in um, our existence on this planet. Amazing. And let's say there were just three things that residents of Aurora could be doing to be uh, better stewards of the habitat. What are those three things? Um, educating themselves, honestly, just, uh, just having some curiosity and getting to know just the space in their yards, even like, like who, who is there, what kind of plants, what kind of animals, um, picking up trash <laughs> is, is one of the most impactful ways that you can give back, especially, um, when it comes to our water health, because when it rains, uh, all of the trash just goes into our creeks because it goes down the storm drain. Um, so picking up trash and then this might be a little biased for me because I am working on this restoration project here at the Plains Conservation Center, but mitigating for invasive species and mostly plant species. And, and that's something else that you can just do in your yard because there's so many of these species that end up in people's yards because they're just so good at exploiting these tiny little areas um, that are fragments of the short grass prairie because of urbanization. So learning, being educated about the wildlife, the nature in the city, picking up trash and mitigating for invasive plant species would be my three. Displacing a lot of these native plants and these native animals really does impact our daily lives. And I keep going back to this carbon sequestration and the pollinator habitat because that's one of the more tangible ways that people can connect with it. And then the water, we just, we don't have enough water to support that many people. <laughs> I mean, I don't know exactly how much, um, that would be a question for Aurora water, but, but that, that's a huge thing. I always teach kids like, oh, this specific plant or this specific animal has a role to play in the ecosystem. And when we try to think about what our role is, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint sometimes. And I like to think that our role is stewardship. Our role, we are smart. We can make all kinds of technological advances that can work really harmoniously with nature where we don't have to just rip things out and throw it away and um, end up polluting our environment. That's another thing is we're going to have a lot more pollution if we continue with um, this urban sprawl without some kind of plan, like without a plan to integrate the corridors and other open spaces that can support the, the natural areas. I feel like I can certainly see people connecting and understanding the value of open space. And we recently had a vote on an open space tax through Arapahoe County. So this is Arapahoe County specifically. Yes, it's an open space tax that was voted in 2003 that 0.25% of sales went 
to open spaces. And this is to acquire open spaces. This is to make them accessible, um, to fund education of those open spaces. And then it was voted on again last year and citizens voted for it to be permanent. So it is not ever going to be voted on again. And it was voted in with an overwhelming majority. Really shows that people, um, at least people in Arapahoe County, really value the open spaces and want them to keep existing. I think that we can collectively, we could probably make a huge impact by focusing on our yards. By just, I mean, it's your space and you can just putting in a little bit of time to educate yourself on um, the environment that we have here, what kinds of plants and animals that environment supports and deciding to implement plants that support the natural ecosystem. I think that we could, we could do a lot because imagine if everybody's yard was all pristine prairie, how much carbon could we sequester that we are emitting into the atmosphere? And I mean, that's, that's like ideal. <laughs> um, so I guess just, it's really about education, honestly, just, just educate, come to the Plains Conservation Center, reach out to Aurora Water too. That would be my two pieces of, of advice. We really appreciate Bendy's very localized perspective that highlights important issues that suburban residents of Aurora might not consider, such as the impact of ornamental flora on the ecosystem, the impact of sprawl on the native prairie ecosystem, and the benefits of biodiversity. With some resident education, sustainability can be stewarded within the suburban context, and we're grateful that Bendy is doing that work. Definitely. It, you know, it also made me think a lot about indigenous erasure as being a part of suburban expansion. The prairie where Aurora is located was home to many tribes who live nomadically and seasonally with the land. Um, and we know that bison were a big part of the ecosystem health and they've been totally or almost entirely erased. Um, but there's also other keystone species like the prairie dog that are some of the, uh, I would say, biggest victims of, of suburban sprawl in this region. Um, prairie dogs, in fact, are uh, ex extremely important to the, the local ecosystem, but are treated as in, you know, invasive species. Um, so they get crowded into really small parts of the, within, in between the sprawl. Um, and so I've grown really interested as a someone from Aurora in resident education as well. And I think the work that Fendi is doing is extremely important because um, we actually do depend on prairie dogs to uh, create, help create our soil underneath our feet that in turn creates a lot of the health that we depend on for our own wellness. Um, so if you ever have a chance to come to Aurora, I hope you have a chance to see the prairie dogs here. And, um, you know, I hope that more and more people in the suburbs have a chance to become um, advocates for, for the prairie dogs um, to be able to live sustainably here. This concludes part one of our two-part series on suburbs and sustainability. We heard from two national thinkers, Judge Glock and Joe Nassauer, about their perspectives on sustainability, and one local perspective from Aurora Bendy Dupre. We hope that these interviews have brought up questions for you and that you can continue this conversation forward. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions on Twitter, so tag us at SuburbsCivics. For now, here are some questions we're considering. Is there space to be an environmentalist and a suburbanist? If so, how do we double down on sustainable futures in the suburbs? Especially considering the need for housing and that much of that development will happen in suburbs, we know that sprawl is not slowing down. 
which is why we think this conversation is so important. We also hope you'll think about questions of the neighborhood effect and the role that individual behavior can play in sustainability in the suburbs. And how we begin and continue to measure sustainability in suburbs is vehicle miles traveled VMT, the correct metric for sustainability in suburbs. And ultimately, we are thinking about the connection that people have to place and the affection that people have to place within the suburbs and the role that that will play and can play in stewarding much more sustainable futures within suburbs. So thank you again for listening. This has been an audio collaboration with the podcast Design and Transition, Diseño en Transición, a bilingual podcast about design and its role in systems level change. We hope you have a chance to listen to that podcast as well. 